Welcome to the Strong Source Commodity Podcast. We are your hosts, Martijn Bron and Alexander Sterk. Hello, everybody. We're here with uh, our guest and uh, very much well-known in the commodity industry, Ivo Sajanovic. Welcome. Thank you very much. Of course, um, we will introduce ourselves uh, as well. I'm Alexander Sterk. I'm a founder of Vesper Commodity Intelligence Platform. Welcome, Ivo. Good to see you. My name is uh, Martijn Bron. I worked as a commodity trader for more than 25 years in Cargill, and that's also how I got to know uh, Evo. I also write about commodities and financial markets on LinkedIn a lot, and recently in a Dutch magazine called Quote. And that's all about education, and hopefully as well some entertainment today. Now, shall I introduce Ivo before I think he introduces I think, himself? I think, I think it's a good one. When we were talking about the podcast, I said to Ivo, uh, I can still recall my start in Cargill Geneva in, in 2003. So that's, that's 20 years ago, but for me, it's like yesterday. And that was for me a, a, a big step because it meant moving from, from Amsterdam to Geneva and also moving to the trading hub of Cargill which to me felt like the best traders of Cargill in the world worked there. And the atmosphere was quite intense. Lots of big egos, big traders, respected traders. So yeah, a little bit intimidating in the beginning for me. And I recall that you were at the other side of the, of the trading floor. And what I, what I won't forget is that you were really kind. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but I wasn't expecting kindness so much on the trading floor over Did there. Did he look scary? No, he, he looked like, like he looks today now, like a very nice, approachable guy. There were at times discussions about who produced uh, the best meat, the U.S. corn-fed or Argentina grass-fed. Uh, those were some of the discussions, but the, at the end of the day, I recall you being very kind and helpful to, to young. Uh, I, I was a, a trader who, who traded for six years, but I recall you as being extremely friendly. And it was always very nice for me to be able to walk up to that side of the floor where I felt like, yeah, there is someone who can, who can teach me, who is willing to listen to me. And, and I'm not surprised at all to see what, uh, what you did after that becoming a professor and a lecturer and, and a writer because you had that naturally with you. So yeah, I mean, that is how I recall you and obviously being a, a fantastic trader and later on becoming the MD of the sugar business and, and so forth. But yeah, good memories of, of working with you when I was in Geneva. But please, well, thank you very much. Words. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. It's a real honor for me to be here in the first episode. So. Thank you very much for thinking about me. A nice introduction, really appreciate it. So I tell you a bit about myself. So I'm from Argentina. Uh, I started in this industry 35 years ago. My first job was in the local grain exchange, the Bolsa de Comercio de Rosario. Uh, I was working there in the economic department with a professor of mine from the university. That department still exists. And they produce high quality reports. And I did that for two years. I was analyzing the local markets as a service for the farm community. Then I joined Cargill when I realized that only the analytical part was probably a bit boring for me. I wanted to see some action. And I joined Cargill in 1989. 
inflation was 197% the month I joined Cargill. <laughs> so my salary went up three times from one month to the other, but I didn't make more money. Then I worked in Rosario for two years. Then I was transferred to Buenos Aires to do the FOP markets. Then I went to Brazil for a while. Then I came to Geneva, originally for two years. And they forgot me here and I'm still around. <laughs> so I never went back. And in Geneva, I traded wheat for one year. After that, I started my career in soybeans. So I did all the different positions in soybeans, assistant trader, senior trader, and then I managed the worldwide position. Then I traded sugar for a while. I became the CEO of a company that is a joint venture. It was a joint venture, actually, because Cargill sold it now between Cargill and Copper And I also managed the Middle East and Africa business for Cargill, a great cultural experience. And I stopped at the end of 2017. And since then, I divide my life in three things. One third, I'm a non-executive director in some companies related to the agriculture sector. Um, could be producers, could be traders. And one third, I teach in the university, which is a passion I have. I do that in Geneva, in Rotterdam, in Buenos Aires, in Rosario, and in Sevilla, in Spain, for a business school. And one third, I'm part of the investment committee of two funds that invest in startups related to AgTech, one in Latin America and one in Africa. Uh, so I still keep the connection with Africa from the Cargill days because the manager of the fund is an ex-Cargill colleague. So this is how I basically divide my life and I really enjoy it. It's a very nice stage. That sounds really, really nice, Ivo. Uh, but I think you've seen all the aspects from managing, trading, but also a bit the theoretical part of it with, with a book and also, of course, teaching. But why did you jump in there? What, what, what was the thing that you liked so much about commodity and stick to it as well? It wasn't a plan, really. What happened is I always had a strong academic, um, let's say, focus. So I wanted to become a PhD in economics and I went to New York University and I started. And then for personal reasons, I had to go back to Argentina. And then it was time to start thinking about the job and my family was always related to this sector so my family from the old uh, Croats who went there at the end of the 19th century they were owners of storage what we call silos in Argentina so they were country dealers and generation after generation let's say our portion of the family share was going down so I didn't have enough room to be part of that business my father was still there but I didn't want to go and bother him So, because I wanted the industry, I wanted to stay in the industry. So I asked his advice and he said, why don't you try to work for Cargill because they come across as good people. That was his <laughs> reflection. And then, okay, I found uh, the possibility of making an interview. Those days we didn't have a web pages, so I didn't know much about Cargill other than they were good people and they were buying grains from my father's family. And so I joined them. And to be honest, when I went there, actually I studied accounting. And so when I went there, I didn't have any clue what I was going to be asked to do. It could be accounting, it could be tax, it could be human resources. And they asked me to start buying grain. And this is how everything started. And I started realizing and learning about what is commodity trading there. I didn't have basically a plan before joining to become a commodity trader. So it was a bit of luck. But I see it with so many people that they by coincidence get into the world of commodities. It's not that, uh, you know, you, well, you are now part of the Erasmus uh, commodity uh, team. But I mean, it, that's, I mean, that yeah. started not that long ago, <coughs> right? I mean, it wasn't uh, many years ago, it was not a, a commodity 
sturdy or whatever. No, I think today we can also, the, 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 the commodity traders and the companies, I think we can do a better job explaining to people what's about. Yeah. And we can, in that way, help to attract people. Yeah. There are universities teaching things about commodities. Not many, but there are some of them. And so you can make it a bit more attractive for young people. Actually, now these days yeah. I see young people asking me, okay, how mm -hmm. can I become a commodity trader? This is something that 30 years ago was completely unusual. Yeah. It's interesting that you say because I, I had no idea that you had no idea, really, when you, when you started. But it's the same with me. And the same about the people. At the time, there was barely any internet and there was hardly any knowledge. Look, cargo wasn't known at all in the Netherlands among students. Yeah, you would work at ABN AMRO or KLM or, or Philips. But I saw a presentation from a recruiter about Cargill, and I thought that's a nice guy. And then I, I, I applied for a job. But like you, I had no idea what I was going to do. But I went to the trading floor, and it reminded me a little bit of what I saw <laughs> from trading places and Wall Street. And indeed, along the way, you get to know what it, what it is. But it is it is it's strange that even after all those years, we are still sitting here talking about there is so little information, so much credible information about companies, what they actually do. And even, even now, when we you made a book, there are not that many books about what commodity trading really is, and there are still myths. There are more than you can imagine. I will send you a list, and yeah? you will spend a lot of time reading it. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming now. Uh, actually, I remember when I started teaching about 10 years ago, students were asking, what can I read? And there was not much material. Now there is a bit more material. I think, for example, what Jonathan Kingsman is doing with his books is really it's really positive for students because they can have a good feeling of what's about, the combination of theory with interviews. I think that helps quite a lot. But no, there are more books coming, so that's helpful. And um, I have a really, because you have so many years of experience. So I have one question that I discussed with Martijn as well. I'm eager to hear yours. Could you share one of your worst and one of your best traits? Can you still recall them? Yeah, I think so, yeah. The best one, at least one, the one that, I, I don't know if it's the one that we made more money, but the one where we really had a lot of fun was playing against an inverse in soybeans. I think it was probably 1997. So the US was running out of soybeans. The market was heavily inverted. I think $2 per bushel or so, which is a lot. Probably beans those days were six, seven dollars, so two dollars is like twenty-five percent. And we brought soybeans from Brazil. We bought soybeans in handy maxis from the Amazon. So the Amazon flow was starting to happen those days, and we moved uh, beans from Ponta da Madera to a small port in the east of the U.S. And well, the day we announced that we sold, that the inverse collapsed, and it was an amazing feeling, really. And also for me, as a Latin American, moving soybeans into the U.S. was something special. Uh, so, I, so that's something I remember with a lot of passion, really. What makes it so special, moving it so uh, all the well, way we north? Were, we, you, you, you sell the inverse, and then, okay, you short the inverse, you make money, and you, can, you change completely the structure of the market from one day to the other, right? And nobody expected it at that time. After that, it happened a few times. Recently, actually, again, there was a small flow of Brazilian beans going to the U.S. Uh, because things now are changing. With the U.S. Uh, 
demanding more and more domestically. The stocks in the U.S. are structurally smaller, so you may see a bit more flows like that. But Ifa, you may, before we, we go to a trade that didn't work out well, but I think it may sound easy for the listeners, yeah, that, oh, there is an inverse, uh, so, some other people call it backwardation, and then you, uh, you ship some beans and fine. But I think, you know, I have experienced these things as well, and actually the, the challenge is to see something like that in the futures market and then coming up with a fundamentally backed game plan to do something with it and then ex- execute to make sure also that you have uh, the, 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 the raw material, uh, that you can actually make it deliverable and going with your team through the cash convergence calculations. Can right. you share a little bit of the process with your, with your team. We talked about theory and books, but what I have always enjoyed of being a commodity trader is you see something like ha- happening like that in the market, and then you sit on your desk, you look around with your smart peers, and maybe you walk a little bit on the floor, and then an idea starts to arise. How are you going to capitalize on that opportunity? So what you see in this case is that the premiums in South America as the let's say, other side of the coin of the strength yeah. in flat price and inverses, they collapse. Yeah. And at some stage, they collapse enough that when you start running your numbers, you put together your premiums in South America yeah. plus the freight. And especially in this case, freight was rather cheap because we were speaking about the northeast of Brazil, which it was a flow that it was a new flow. And we were able to move it to the east of the U.S., which, okay, made it work with just small volume. We were able to change the economies completely. Yeah. So trading the premiums is really key in all these things. Sometimes people get a uh, bit lost thinking only about the flat price and premiums is super important. Yeah, and then also the the excitement that, that I recall and you must have had, that you actually have that boat on the water, yeah? You have your position on and you assume that the rest of the market is, is oblivious. And that's the thing always with these inverses. They can stay alive for a long time and then evaporate. <laughs> When <laughs> the market knows yeah, right. that there but, is a but boat. But as soon as we made the announcement, the, the inverse started yeah. collapsing, really. <laughs> did yeah. you actually deliver or did you just reverse? Oh, yeah, we, we oh, delivered. Yeah, and I always remember also a nice anecdote about the delivery. When we deliver the beans, I remember receiving phone calls from our colleagues. They are complaining that the beans were smelling smoky. <laughs> and you know what? The reason is that in Brazil, people still dry yeah. the beans with yeah, yeah. the good with ovens yeah right and because of that they were smoky so yeah. for they, they were very annoyed that actually we send them smoky soybeans yeah so we yeah we deliver the two cargos actually yeah and then going to the other one yeah. uh, we had a big crisis i think it was 2004 we had a big book to china china was growing in soybeans a lot i went for the first time to china in 1997 and china was not buying soybeans they were buying a bit of meal a bit of oil and today, China buys 100 million metric tons, and they are 60% of the flow. So I had the opportunity to see during my professional, let's say, soybean career, all this growth in China was amazing. And so China was buying a lot, and one day we started receiving defaults. So our cargos were not paid, they were not discharged. It was a crisis called the red soybean crisis because China was complaining that they were sending them tainted beans beans that you paint because they are going to be used for seeds okay and yeah so wait so they painted the beans that's what they thought 
Well, you don't know who painted the beans, but actually they were tainted beans showing up there and the cargos were rejected. <laughs> and at the very beginning, I thought it was only happening to us. And after a few days, I realized it was an industry-wide thing. It was a big thing because prices of soybeans went down, freight went down, and then they started basically defaulting to replace the cargos. And what happens is when you get a default in one cargo in one small flow, you can divert the cargo to other places. In soybeans, when you are defaulted 60% of the trade, yeah, if you are smart enough, you may send one cargo to Korea, one cargo to Japan, but after that, the pipe is full. Yeah. And actually, we had to bring some of the boats back to Europe, I remember, to crash them in Europe. Mm. And just imagine the cost of uh, yeah. moving a boat yeah. uh, those days from yeah. China to... Yeah. yeah, that was an expensive lesson. It was a very good lesson, though, uh, for me as a manager. I learned a lot from my managers mm. Uh, those days in terms of how supportive they were. It was difficult because it was the end of the year. Uh, we were having a very good year, so suddenly the profitability of the product line suffered. We didn't lose money because we were having a good year, but we suffered a lot. This was going to spill over in the rest of the desks because it was going to affect the bottom line. And my colleagues, when I told them, and my managers were very supportive. Actually, I thought one day when I was called to go upstairs to explain that they were going to sack me. And actually, it was all the contrary. They were inviting me to go there to think all together what to do. And it was a very good lesson because I always think that in similar circumstances, I would have blamed the person who did that, myself. And my managers did all the contrary. After we solved partially the problem, I remember they told me it's the last time that this is going to happen. <laughs> but in the meantime, they were extremely supportive. Yeah, Nice lesson, I think. So you are allowed to make mistakes on the trading floor? Yes, you are allowed to trade mistakes. Once? Yeah, not very often, let's <laughs> say. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, thanks for sharing these great stories. If you look at our podcast, we also want to you know, give to especially young traders who don't have the experience like you have, or Martijn. We also want to give them some advice. You already say that you're allowed to make mistakes, but maybe once. What would your advice be for young commodity traders that start in this industry or are just a few years in? Well, I, I think one of my, my main messages in general when I speak to young people is that the key, I think, to be a good trader is not to be dogmatic. I think you need to learn to be self-critical all the time and not to use facts to confirm your biases. Mm. Yeah. And that's it's difficult to educate your brain with that, but I, I'm very influenced by a philosopher called Karl Popper, who insists all the time of the value of critical rationalism and criticism, and he's very much against dogmatism. And I think probably the secret is when you come to the office, you have to assume that you have no position, and you start reading all the news, assuming that you don't have a position, and after reading all the news, you think that you need to have a position that is the one you have, perfect, stick to it, but is the one that you don't have, you change it. And you don't need to feel bad about it because we are basically traders to make money and not to be right. Okay, If we make money and we are right, even better. But the bottom line is that we are there to make money. So that would be one piece of advice I would give, apart than being very curious and you have to integrate learnings from politics, from law, from geopolitics, from maths. It's a nice combination. And I think one of the things I enjoy the most in this business is that you don't have a routine. So you have a routine because, yeah, you wake up every day and you go to the office, but the, what's going on in the office is always different. 
And I think that's super stimulating for your brain. So I think this is one of the very nice things of this business. Every day is different. But is it is it possible to, to yeah. as you say, right, you have politics, you have economic uh, drivers, you have uh, your internal positions, you have uh, multinationals, uh, suppliers that want to buy and sell. How can you combine all that in your mind or with your team to make the right decision? I was reading the other day I, an author I like very much. His name is Scott Irwin, and he's a top agriculture economics professor in the U.S., And he was explaining why one day he rejected the efficient market hypothesis. So the efficient market hypothesis is a theory that says that markets are always right and you mm -hmm. cannot take advantage of markets mm -hmm. because the prices are always pricing the yeah. fundamentals. Yeah. So he was wondering how a trader makes systematically money. Yeah. And then he concluded that actually challenging the efficient market hypothesis, there are people who are super alert that he calls super alert. And those people are able to see the world in such a way that they are able to capture profit opportunities more often than others. I think if you complement those super alert guys with the right routines in the office and with the right technology, I think you create uh, what we were exchanging ideas with uh, Martin a few weeks ago when I told him that I think companies are interpretation frameworks. Okay. Why I'm saying that? Because we all have access today more or less to the same information. Factually, you can see the same report, but we don't conclude all the same about the report. Why? Because our interpretation frameworks are completely different. And this is why there are companies more successful than others. Okay, So being part of yeah. the right interpretation framework is key. But this is also an explanation of why it's difficult sometimes to leave a company and to start your own. Because... You carry all the things you know, but you are unable to carry all the things that the organization yeah. knows. Okay, And I think that's something we underestimate, the importance of the individual against the team. And I think teams today are becoming more and more important. Not to the extreme that the individual doesn't count, but I think the individual probably count a bit less. Yeah. I'd like to say a couple of things about that, Ivo. Look, it's interesting that you say not not dogmatic and i recognize that but at the same time you also need to balance it versus having a, having confidence huh? mm -hmm. because in fact the market will tell you constantly not to be dogmatic right yeah what i mean with that it's rare right? I mean, at least in my experience that your position is immediately right or is constantly right so you're you're constantly facing opposing opinions. It can be the market who tells you, and you see your P&L is red, the market tells you you're, you're wrong. So the market is constantly telling you, okay, not to be dogmatic and be flexi flexible. But often the money is, if you have a fundamental analysis, the money is in trading your longer-term fundamental game plan. So I agree with not being dogmatic in the sense that you you need to always be open and curious. And indeed, what you said is really strong that when you're in a position you have the habit to be more receptive to the to the things that are confirming your position mm -hmm. and and sometimes it's strange that when you when you're stopped out on a day on the same day so you came in with a with a conviction you're stopped out and then on the same day you are receptive for all kinds of other news it's a it's a mental thing right mm -hmm. but you learn to 
deal over time between balancing between being not dogmatic and being confident and having trust in your fundamental view. And I think you said what, what are successful companies and, and, and what not. I think here it, it depends a bit on you know, the confidence that you have in your fundamental analy analytics, which enables you to sweat out a position, to have a position for three months, versus when you are really dependent on sentiment and you trade more the vibe of the day, of the week, which to a large extent is noise. It's very often is noise. Mm -hmm. Whether you talk about financial markets and where people try to forecast the, what the stock market is going to do this week or even today. And that is also a reason why, why day traders are often not successful because it's noise. And so I think... But is, that, is, but is it not also the size of your company? If you you know if the positions you can take, I mean the impact that you can have. I mean a, a, if a, a big trader like a Cargill, whatever, they can have a massive impact taking a position than let's say uh, a smaller one or one of the medium size, right? So it's also your. The, the but but prices in my mind, and this is a big debate. They always reflect fundamental values. You can have some distortions in the way from one equilibrium point to the other, but in the long term, you always go to the fundamental values. So if you really master the fundamentals, you develop very strong conviction. Yeah. Now, coming back to the abilities of the trade, I think good traders are those who resolve some paradox better than others. So, for example, I think Martin was somehow making reference to the tension or trade-off you have between confidence and being open-minded. So this is one. Are you resilient or do you give up? So some traders will resolve that paradox better than others. Yeah. Then you have people who they know that you have to enforce controls, but on the other hand, you need to be free to think. So how do you resolve that paradox? And you have a, a menu of maybe 10 different paradoxes that you face daily in your work. And those who resolve those paradoxes better are going to be the best traders. Now, I don't think you can learn to be a trader reading a book. Okay, some people, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes the, the, the students at university, they ask me, okay, what can I read to be a trader? And I said, well, if you want to know what a trader is doing, read this book, but that is not going to make you a trader. Yeah. So, like, I don't think you can ask Messi, okay, how yeah. to kick a penalty. Okay, yeah, he will maybe tell you a bit about how to kick a penalty, but you won't learn to be messy reading a book. Especially okay. when you, as an Argentina, of course. Uh, right, so uh, that's a good example <laughs> of, of how to succeed. But uh, I think those traders who can resolve this list of paradox better than others are the, the strongest traders. But isn't it also the team? I mean, you've been, you've been managing teams as well, right? And you need a diverse pool of, of trades, right? And you want them to also have that discussion, have different views, challenge each other. Is that what you also basically, cre you created that environment that could uh, happen there? I, I think that's key. I think to have a good team is uh, super important to, to succeed. And I think in Geneva, we were very lucky to have great teams, very diverse. So from a geographical point of view, for example, I don't remember the number, but probably we are 50 different nationalities there mm. or even more. So just imagine whenever there is a conflict about something, you can go and speak with people who are real experts. So during a while, I was the expert in the Argentine mess. Okay, fine. Then people got tired of the Argentine mess. And then my, let's say, 
competitive advantage about Argentine Messi's decline. Okay, but during a period that was very important because Argentina yeah. is such a big player in the agriculture markets that knowing early in the morning what was going to happen was useful. Yeah. But then you have also diversity from many different dimensions, professions. So we were a combination of people who have nothing in common really in terms of professions. We were hired from matter of fact, we were very open-minded. And so today, okay, probably there is a need for more gender as well. But when you combine all the different dimensions, it becomes a very rich outcome, really. And it's a great learning experience. So if you have the right uh, mindset in terms of being open to learn and not to think that you go there just to speak and to be heard, I think that makes a hell of a difference. At the end, let you, did you let the traders make the decisions or could you, say, could you make a decision on what you, what, uh, what you would do, basically? When I was managing it, it yeah. uh, no, I think we were, uh, I, I think I always like to delegate. And of course you need to also um, detect if you have the right people around you. So for me, a big test was always what happened after six months, because I always like to teach. The company was asking me to change my assistant very oftenly, which is a bit difficult because you are forced to be teaching all the time. But on the other hand, you feel that you are doing something positive for the rest. And after six months, I think I was able to detect if someone was good enough. The only exception was Alex Anfeliu, who after 15 days, I realized he was much better than me. And this is why today he's running basically the business in Geneva. Uh, but if, if in six months you feel that people are not taking off, okay, there is a problem. So those people you cannot delegate enough to others. You, can, you should delegate as much as you can as in you order can. to let them grow. Yeah. Okay. Can you define taking off? So what is your, how do you measure that? People start realizing about the opportunities themselves. They mm -hmm. start realizing about the risk and reward of different positions. One test for me were holidays. Okay. So, for example, when I was going on holidays, mm -hmm. I was asked not to follow things, but it was stronger than me, so I was still following at the end mm -hmm. of the day what was happening. And if the trader who was my assistant at that moment was doing something similar to what I would have done, mm -hmm. that gave me a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. If suddenly I was finding that the positions were completely the opposite of what I would have done, that was creating a bit of uh, concerns, right? Why? Because then you say you what you do is always right. <laughs> probably not, probably not, but it's difficult to gain confidence if someone is doing yeah. things you cannot Understand. rationalize. Yeah. yeah. But then what would you do in, in that case? You would you would give them a call and ask them, hey, wh why why have you done that? Yeah, sure. And then maybe you learn that yeah. there is a good reason for that. So I don't expect always to be right, but I think it's unavoidable that you start from a position where you have an opinion about things. And so I think to be objective and neutral is not, not to have opinion is to learn to be told that you are wrong. So I think all, you always start with an opinion, and maybe I was very opinionated, but I think if you can learn that you were wrong, that's already a big step forward. Yeah, and there is also, like you, you, you mentioned the word delegation. Mm -hmm. I think most people, whether it's trading or not, but also in trading, they don't like micromanagers mm -hmm. because they like to operate independently and, and freely. But at the same time, the commodity industry is, is, is not well known and, and people like, well, both of us, in fact, we started with no, with no knowledge. So how do you balance between giving freedom to operate, delegate fairly quickly because you have to deal with intelligent people versus protecting them that they don't make really yeah. big mistakes? Mistakes too soon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't think there is a 
black and white answer for that. I think it's a very good frame what you are doing. And I think it's probably one of the paradoxes that you have to sort out as a manager. Yeah. There is maybe a very thin balance equilibrium between going in one direction or the other. And probably there's no also answer for every single person. There are different approaches to different people. Some people may need that you are closer to them more than others. Others may enjoy freedom earlier than other people. And I think the secret is for yeah. you not to deal with all of them yeah. with the same approach. And do you think it's also to to add on that, because you've been in different commodities, right? So you, you've seen like sugar and oils. Would you recommend to people that start in this industry to say, well, don't stick to one commodity and, and do that for many years? Yeah, I would recommend them to change. Yeah, it doesn't mean that they have to change if they are 30 years around 30 different commodities because at the end of the day, they may not know anything about yeah. nothing. But I would recommend them to change, yeah. I and think why? If, Because I think, uh, you, first of all, you bring the experience of other commodities to a new world and you can yeah. maybe use that experience to discover new opportunities that yeah. people who are used to trade things with a similar frame, they don't see. Then I think it keeps you alive and active. I think one of the risks of our business is to become hyper-specialized in a very small thing For example, I always say one of the things I enjoy the most about this stage of my life is that I can think about a lot of different things. Yeah. So I was an expert in soybeans for a while, then I became knowledgeable because I don't think I ever became an expert in sugar, like in soybeans, mm -hmm. but I was knowledgeable about sugar. And now I can think about so many different things that is very energizing for my brain. And so if I imagine doing 30 years the same commodity, it should be tiring and boring, I, I, I guess. So no, I always recommend people to try to, to change. And what is not that easy is to change from one family to the other. There are roughly three big families in commodities. You have energy, you have metals, and you have agris. And in agris, we have a division between grains and oils and softs. So sometimes it's not that easy to do what Martin did, which is yeah. to go from grains and oils to soft. And even more difficult to go from agris to energy. But if that would be possible, I would really recommend it. At these days, with energy transition, I think that will open a lot of great opportunities. But do you think in the past, we always saw that relationships were very important in this whole industry. But mm -hmm. I see also now trading companies where the relationship actually becomes less and less important. Also because I see that people at least give less value to that relationship or, or they want to communicate in a different way, right? They they install WhatsApp on their computer and they just say, give me the best offer or give me the best bid and and com communicate via WhatsApp. Whereas I also recall where you spoke to some people more often on a week than, than your friends, for example. So I think it depends very much on what you are focusing on. I think if you are focusing more, let's say, in derivatives, to, to make it simple, yeah. Relationships are probably less important. If you are focusing more in physical cash, yeah. I think relationships are super important because that will give you yeah. the liquidity you need to be able to trade around. Yeah. Uh, unless you have very well developed and liquid paper markets, yeah. which are not in general, they are not that that no. common. No. Uh, so I, I can see that probably relationships are less important than before, and even an asset footprint could be considered also less important than before, but. If you really want to know what's going on with the fundamentals, because that's your trading style, and you feel that knowing the fundamentals will give you enough confidence to go in one direction, I think you still need an asset footprint and relationships. I, I think it's an interesting point you made, Alex, because I always thought being in Cargill, you, you, you know a lot, right? You, you, 
because of the asset footprint and the size, quality of the people. But look, we could have an S&D meeting and I felt like, okay, yeah, it makes total sense because of all the information I have in Cargo and then spent two days in London with the cocoa industry, with brokers, bankers, other traders. And I thought, wow. We don't know enough. Ah, right. We know so little. Right. Yeah, and I've so often thought I, I need to be in London almost every week. Yeah, so I, d I do think that depending on the market you're in and especially cash markets, you want to meet people, you want to see them. When you meet someone, you usually also feel, are they confident in what they say? Yeah, they try to test you with their view on the S&D. When you, you see it. But that's only people from within or also with, if you go to London to a conference or is it no, only people from within? I think it's from the, from the industry. And so, so from, 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 from trade fairs from the industry. And, but, but look, I had so many times that I was in the taxi on my way home. I thought, shit, we need to, we need to do this every week. Because, yeah, when you, when you talk to someone, you, you actually know, you really see what they tell you. Is bullshit or not. But uh, I think going back to this idea yeah. I put on the table before about dogmatism and criticism, yeah. I think meeting and speaking with people outside the organization helps you to become less dogmatic because yeah. otherwise sometimes when yeah. you are surrounded by all the people thinking more or less yeah. the same, it's difficult to think out of the box and different. So when you go outside and you check with other people, I think that helps you to be more critical with certain things. So it, it goes in the same direction. I would also advocate to, to be open, to go and yeah. speak and discuss things. And, and I also have had many times, and it could be in the corridors of, a, of an event, where you talk about maybe market structure, and I had, I had a certain view on it and, and a certain strategy, and you talk to a credible, respected trader who comes up with a completely different structure, and, I'm, and I was often like blown away, and I thought, I haven't, I haven't even, even thought about it, and I find it important to realize that this guy is running that exposure and then translating it to your own exposure mm -hmm. also thinking maybe he's bullshitting me <laughs> no but that, but but that's the whole <laughs> that's thing that's a very yeah. good one i mean because why, why, why should they be completely yeah, because transparent absolutely and 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 this is like you know curiosity but also being some somewhat skeptical that i've t taught myself whatever tell whatever someone tells me I should not take it as the truth. I should take it as, okay, what is his or her incentive to sure. tell me? Because, because very often in the, in the commodity industry, people also want to make, uh, make a, a point. Huh? Yeah, but I think that depends very much on the commodity you are trading yeah. and on the features of the, commodity, of the futures market you are trading. Yeah. In some markets, let's take soybeans in the US, for example, where you deliver beans along the Mississippi River, it's very rare to see a delivery. Mm. Okay, if you go into a different market, sugar, for example, where you deliver sugar all around the world, you see deliveries yeah. very often. So depending on that structure, the features of the dynamic of that dialogue changes completely from being completely irrelevant in the case of beans to be really meaningful in the case of sugar. And probably cocoa is similar to sugar, if I understand well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so therefore there you need to be very alert about what what they are saying and what's happening. Yeah, and and in terms of information, what you said about the physical franchise, and I, I recall an example of, of two of the most respected traders in Coco, 
and they were both in physical franchises. And then they moved to a hedge fund where they had their two screens, basically screen setup, let me put it that way. But for the rest, they didn't have the physical franchise anymore. And I visited them once in London and there they were sitting there and they were not, they were not successful. And I find it very striking because these were really strong traders who had a track record of being successful in those physical franchises. But outside of that environment... System, right. You're part of a system there. Yes, right? you're part of yeah, a, a, right. a system eh? and what you, what you described before. And in that setting, they were not successful. And, and another guy who I know well who was responsible for them, he traded extremely well, also very respected, but he could manage to trade in the hedge, in the hedge fund environment. These two, they could not. Right. What's the big difference, do you think, then, between yeah. in a hedge fund and in a, because in a, in a you, system? You have no natural house. flow. So in a, in a hedge fund, you have, you have a piece of paper in the morning yeah. and you have money to, to allocate, but you have no natural flow from maybe an origin who wants to sell and you need to hedge again, and from big clients who want to buy... I think the test also when you have a physical commodity trader, a successful commodity trader going to a hedge fund is the following. The right environment, let's say, for, for profitability for the commodity industry is when flat prices are higher and when volatility is higher, you make more money than when flat prices are lower and volatility is lower. Yeah. So in the last two or three years, we had a great period of volatility, high flat prices. This is why commodity companies in general, they did pretty well. So whenever that happens, you have hedge funds coming and taking some of your traders to trade in the hedge fund. Now, if that move coincides not only with the fact that you are going to be working for a different system, but with the fact that volatility goes down, you are facing a much more difficult trading environment. So you are alone and yeah. with low volatility. So the chances for you to fail, they yeah. are exponential. Yeah. And it's not because you are different, it's just you are sitting, let's say, in the, suddenly in the wrong place. So that's something that I think Martin, uh, when he advised people about career moves, that's something to think deeply about it. Eh? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, also, can you say that commodity trading at a hedge fund is real commodity trading like you do at a at an ADM Cargill or whatever? I think if you trade commodity futures, yeah. Why, yeah. why not, yeah. I think it depends on how the hedge fund is organized. I think one of the advantages eventually of trading for a hedge fund versus yeah. one of the big houses is that maybe you have a wider menu of products to follow so you can focus or concentrate in those where you, there is a real opportunity. Sometimes when you are managing a product line for a trade house, you have to stay with a single product. And yeah. if there are not great opportunities, one of the mistakes is to overtrade, yeah. which is always tempting, Okay, but you shouldn't do. But if there are no opportunities and you have a single product, it's pretty boring. Yeah. If in the hedge fund you manage to manage yeah. a, a wide, let's say, menu of products, that could be interesting. Yeah, I, I've, I've, do, I've been doing presentations, first oil season and later cocoa, to some hedge funds. Now, Osprey, for example, in, in New York, which is uh, owned by Dwight Anderson, fantastic. Really, really hugely impressive knowledge about commodities. Paul Tudor Jones, really, really strong in, in commodities. Blenheim for many years, eh, which was had by a Dutch guy, Willem Koiker, 
who he died last year. Absolutely fantastic hedge fund, successful on commodities. So yeah, there are really examples of, of hedge funds with yeah, strong very quality well. Uh, very well. uh, yeah, performance. Sure. Yeah. I'm just uh, looking at uh, the time as well. Of course, we still actually have a lot of questions, but we're definitely not going to make it uh, in this episode. But I can come back for episode number 100. <laughs> I'm happy to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We are interested. Do you have a kind of a trading philosophy? So the motto we were following when we were in Geneva, and I think that was designed by our, our manager those days, Emery Kenick, he was always mm -hmm. saying that we have to play to win. Mm -hmm. So playing to win was the motto we were following. And I think it's still very valid. Uh, so you don't try to avoid making losses or you don't try to lose. You try to win, and this is dictating a deep risk-reward analysis. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be my, my philosophy, just to play to win. So that's noted for uh, for all the traders here. A, and now with everything that's going on, and we had so many massive topics already, from COVID to wars that uh, affect seeds from Ukraine, a lot of themes, we had supply chain disruptions. What are the themes that you're interested at the moment in that you're following? I, I like to try to understand better and to study deeper three things. One is the impact of macro issues in markets. I think we fundamental traders, we have a tendency to think too much in the microeconomics of each market and we tend to miss the impact of the macro world. And that's probably what happened this year with the crude oil market. So everyone were mm. super bullish yeah. since January and things didn't yeah. play out until the OPEC decided to start cutting supplies. Yeah. But when you see the impact of a tight monetary policy of GDP yeah. not growing, yeah as in the past, all those things started uh, impacting in micro markets. Yeah, so yeah. I think the impact of macro, the impact of the dollar as an international currency, yeah. uh, that's, I think, a big area where we can learn a lot of things. Second, uh, the impact of biofuels in price formation. I think that's a super interesting topic. Too. Yeah. And the third one, I, I, I'm reading more and more uh, about demography. And I'm starting to think that the population in the world is going to grow much less than what people expect. Mm -hmm. I think most of the people are very worried that we are going to be, today we are 8 billion, that we are going to be 11 billion in 2100. And actually I'm starting to think that we are not going to even be 10 billion. And that is going to bring a lot of changes in a lot of things. So... I think understanding a bit better the demography of a population that grows probably less than expected and becomes older clearer than expected is something that I would like to understand a bit better. Thanks. Okay, good. Eva, we should obviously not forget to touch upon your, your book. Thank you. And, and the thing is, I've, I found out that you were busy with this book through something on, on LinkedIn. And then when, when I read what it was about, I was very excited. And I, I wrote, I think I commented to you on, on LinkedIn. And you were so friendly to, to include part of that in the book. And I would like to re recommend this, this book. You're not paying me anything for that, to <laughs> say that. But, but I, really, I really do. Because I like the fact that there is a, there is a book made by you and Alan, two credible people. And 
What I like about it is it's not intended to, to actually sell something. It's not some kind of charlatan story about oh, the next uh, commodity supercycle. No. In fact, it is demystifying some of the things that we thought were right about commodities. Now, and I think also the timing was super interesting. Uh, 21, 22, the everything bubble, free money moving to the highest inflation. Now, not that you have seen as an Argentinian, but I think certainly the highest inflation that Alex and I have seen here in Holland. So I think the timing is the timing is fantastic. And I told you, I read it twice. Um, you are the only person yeah, beyond but, me and Alan that read it more than once. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I was reading it And you know a dog uh, wagging its tail, yeah, or a puppy wagging its tail from excitement. And that is what, what I had with this book. Because I recognized so many things in it. It confirmed my views so many times. And I saw you as yeah, someone I like and I find very credible. Could you share with us what gave you the idea to do it? And what, what was it like? To, to actually move from the idea into writing it? I think it was a combination of two things. One of the findings of the research I'm doing and that I'm teaching in the university is that commodity prices in the long term, they tend to go down mm. in real terms. Yeah. Mostly agriculture. Mm -hmm. If you want to make that even more interesting, if you would measure the price of commodities in terms of real wage yeah so the amount of time let's say you want to measure the amount of time you needed in 1901 to buy one mm. kilo of wheat mm. and you compare with the amount of time you needed today it's nothing mm. okay so it's not only the fact that in real term the price in dollars is going down but also in terms of real wage is going further down mm -hmm. if on top of that you consider that in 1900, we were feeding probably 1 billion people, and today mm. we are feeding 8 yeah. billion people. Uh -huh. yeah. The impact is even compounded. Yes. Yeah. So the conclusion is that I don't see really a trend to see mm. an appreciation of commodity prices in real terms. Yeah. So this is one fact. Yeah. The second one is that whenever we have a crisis, we see banks advising people to go and buy commodities yeah. as the hedge against inflation. Yeah. And what I try to say is that be careful It, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Commodities are not an asset class that you can buy and passively follow without understanding them. And if you are going to follow commodities, you better trade them in the sense that you buy and you sell them when it makes yeah. sense. But buying them commodities and staying with a commodity position for ages just yeah. as a hedge, I don't think is the right advice. So that was the yeah. reason why we wrote it. Now, I thought... This is common sense. But apparently, it is not common sense at all. And the thing is, I have been giving presentations to pension funds in London and in New York about commodities. Yeah, And obviously, I wanted to do that. But I always thought, what are you going to do now? Because I, I give my view, my analysis of, about the commodity SD, uh, whether it was oil seeds or, or cocoa. And I thought, okay, so this is my trading game plan, if you will. What are you going to do next week when I'm no longer here? What are you going to do? <laughs> They will just stay with the position. Yeah, no, but yeah. I, yeah. I wanted to do it, and I enjoyed these presentations, but I always thought, well, this is, not, this is not an investment. 
and things like how they get killed in the with the curve, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> they yeah. they don't know, but then I also started to realize that sometimes they do it for diversification. Yeah, that's it. Because they thought, oh, you know, this thing is not correlated to anything. So we have something in our portfolio which is not correlated to anything and actually theoretically reduces our risk mm -hmm. and maybe enables us to take more exposure in, in some of the other things that we that we do understand. I think there are two, two reasons behind. One is, like you properly say, diversification, and the other one is the hedge against inflation. Diversification definitely diversifies the portfolio. Now, as a hedge against inflation, again, it depends. It depends especially of the timing of your in and out. Yeah. So if you were lucky enough to, let's say, buy commodities in March 2020, you made yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. If you were unlucky enough to follow this advice in March 2022, yeah, you lost 30% of your hedge. capital. It's not a hedge, it's, it's a trade. Right. Yeah. You, need the you need the people to do it. Yeah. If, but these pension funds, they need to set up the people that really understand the, the commodities, yeah. understand the trades. Otherwise, it's a, it's a one-off thing. You can be lucky, you can be unlucky. But take go. this year, for example. This year... Goldman Sachs predicted that commodity prices were going to move up 28% 2023. Okay, today the Goldman Sachs commodity index is year to date 1% up. Mm. Inflation is probably 3.5% up, so your net return is negative by 2.5%. If you take the Bloomberg commodity index, is down 8%, plus the inflation 3%, you are down 11%. So that's the other thing. It depends very much on the nature of the index you are buying. Yeah. So the fact that it's not just go and buy commodities. So which commodity do you buy? What's the rolling strategy of the fund? Yeah. So there are a lot of things that you need to sort out before going in that direction. And so I think it's actually don't have paper markets. I think it's better to to find a good, yeah, eventually active manager who can play both long side and short side, but and allocate money in that way. I, I think here the difference you see between investing in equity stocks versus commodities. Timing is everything, yeah? But that really applies to to commodities where you trade on the short term. Investing in the stock market, you should not time the market. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big difference, right? Well, you have dividends as well that uh, yeah. here you don't have. And, and, and I think that's also the what, what makes being in this industry so, so interesting is that you really need to make a deep analysis yeah, you can't just say, "Oh, I put this thing on for the for the long run," like sometimes people do when they do a day trade in commodities. The day trade goes goes wrong, and then <laughs> they leave it overnight, and they it turns into kind of almost like an investment for the long term. I, I think the book is a word of prudence and to yeah. be cautious. Yeah. So I've been trading commodities for the last 35 years. So the last thing I want people to think is that you shouldn't no. trade commodities. Actually, you should trade commodities, but not yeah. buy passively commodities. But you say cautious. What, why I mentioned, like, I, I was reading it like a puppy wagging its tail is because it actually forces you to think and to really understand the context. And it also gives credibility to the people who are successful in this business. This is not putting on a trade and then opening your eyes yeah, in after six 20 years like Buffett. I'm not saying what Buffett and Munger do is, is, is simple. It's not. 
But in investing in the stock market, time is your friend. You have just explained that time is not your friend in commodities. Timing, timing is your friend timing. and your analysis. Right. Huh? And, yeah, but and, not and staying. The fact of staying is not the value in commodities. Yeah. No. no, and, and, yeah. and therefore, I mean, when you, again, when I read this book, I thought, yeah, this is what we do. This is not a wolf of Wall Street bullshit. This is grinding. This is hard work. And that makes it difficult, complex, but exciting and extremely rewarding when you when you make a good trade. Well, sometimes I have people say, but then trading commodities is difficult. And I say, yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it has to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has to be. With that on the yeah. end note, I mean, talking about timing, I think as a conclusion, I've written down some some things that I that I learned being not dogmatic. You're allowed to make one mistake, not more, <laughs> right? <laughs> you need the interpretation framework. Playing to win is your sentence. And I really, really appreciate you being here. And I look forward to our great night tonight here in Amsterdam, of course. Um, no, but thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. Super to have you in our first episode. Really special, especially because I had no idea how to do a podcast together here with Martijn. Um, so thank you very much again. I'm very glad to be here and to be the first guest. It's a real honor. So good luck with the project. <laughs> hopefully you have a lot of listeners in the future. Yeah, thank, thank you again, and, and thank you for, for, for writing the book as well, because our industry needs people who are willing to share their knowledge, and that's not, it's, it's not, like, let's say, a transparent industry. So the, the, the industry should be glad that they have you willing to educate, uh, and that's also, you know, some of the motivation for Alex and myself to do something similar. To, to share our knowledge and experience and, and educate everyone who is interested in the commodity industry and, and make better decisions and have a better understanding of what's happening in the, in the world. So thanks a lot for that. So we do that with a lot of fun and with the podcast. So thanks for that. Thanks for you. It's a wrap. 